came across this uh, article when a man decided to uh, go to a Cincinnati Reds ball game with his girlfriend. He knew he was, he was uh, already in trouble with the law. He had broken parole. No one knew where he was. On top of that, he had failed to appear in court for a date with a, a judge. Uh, during the game, you know how they have the, the, uh, the kiss cam? They try to get couples to kiss, and then, well, wouldn't you know it, they spot he and his girlfriend, put their picture on the big screen for 30,000 people to see, and before the end of the game, he's arrested. His uh, lawyer later complained, and I quote, out of 30,000 people in the ballpark that day, my client is the one who will not only get his face put on the screen, but his parole officer just so happened to be at the same ball game. Imagine that just caught in a sea of faces he is he's caught well it reminded me of uh, this prodigal prophet he failed to make his court appearance in the courtroom of the Ninevite king he is evidently under the impression that he can somehow run in the opposite direction and hide from the surveillance lens of an omniscient omnipresent God Now, if you're just joining us in this study through the Journal of Jonah, you could easily summarize what we've learned thus far in one very simple sentence. God said, Jonah, go. And Jonah said, no. Or you could put it in a little longer sentence. God said, Jonah, I want you to go and deliver a message of mercy. And Jonah said, God, I would rather... Resign and run, then see the Ninevites repent. And so Jonah, this prophet, has resigned his commission. He's turned in his prophet's badge and his hospital pass card. He's taken the fish off the bumper of his cart. And uh, he's given all of his manuscripts to the younger prophets, you know, to use because he doesn't need them anymore. And he's heading in the opposite direction, which happens to be the coast of Spain, But he is about to discover that God has not accepted his resignation. And God is going to give Jonah some time to do some, some deep thinking. <laughs> I didn't think you'd catch it there for a minute. I really didn't. Now what happens in chapter 1 can be divided, what happens next, into three dramatic scenes. Each of them with their own subtitle. Scene number 1. Don't disturb. Scene number two, don't ask. Scene number three, don't turn around. Scene one opens in verse four. Let's back up to verse three and get a running start. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. What wonderfully descriptive yet terrifying language. You could render the Hebrew text to read, And the Lord picked up a great wind and hurled it on the sea. Now, what you've got immediately is a spontaneous prayer meeting that's going to take place on deck by extremely terrified sailors. 
In fact, uh, it says, then the sailors, verse 5, became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down below into the hold of the, of the ship. The word for sailor, I thought, was interesting. It comes from the Hebrew noun used for, for salt. And to this day, old fishermen are called old salts, aren't they? These old salts are immediately calling out to the God that they happen to, uh, to, to believe in. These men are veteran sailors, by the way. They, they have ridden, more than likely most of them, certainly the captain will be introduced to in a minute. Uh, they, they've ridden through a lot of storms. But this storm was so suddenly, uh, swiftly upon them that, that they assumed it would take God, any God, to get them out of it alive And they were right. And so right in the middle of verse 5, while they're praying, we're informed that Jonah has gone down below into the hold of the ship. He's lain down and he's fallen fast asleep. There are a lot of ironies in this paragraph. I'll try to pull out some of them for you. But it's ironic to me that here the, the pagans are praying and the prophet is sleeping. While they're praying, Jonah is sleeping The sailors are literally tossing out everything that isn't nailed down. Now, Jonah isn't just sleeping. The end of verse 5 tells us that he is sound asleep. Your translation may may read he's in a deep sleep. He he is fast. You could render he's fast asleep. I thought it was funny that the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, literally translated this verb to snore. This is centuries ago, and they translated snore. Jonah is literally snoring away. That's probably how the captain found him, located. How many of you men sleep like the prophets of God? (laughs) Amen. We'll forget that he's a rebellious prophet in the meantime, but it's funny when Hurricane France swept through, you know, our county, (laughs) my wife told me the next morning, honey, you slept through Hurricane Fran. I slept through the whole thing. She said, you snored right through everything. And I thought, well, it's a spiritual gift as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) What a way to ride out the storm. Well, Jonah's got this do not disturb sign on the door for the sailors. And he's he's got a do not disturb sign on his heart for God. And he is literally snoring through the storm of of the century. And verse 6 tells us, look there, so the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Literally, how can you sleep through this storm? Get up. Call on your God. Interesting, when faced with natural disasters, how pagans often turn to prayer. Suddenly, these old salts are praying fervent prayers. The captain wants to make sure he has every base covered. He's convinced there's some God behind this storm, and he wants to make sure he's got every God covered. So he grabs Jonah by the lapels, and he pulls him to his feet, and he barks, Wake up, man! Start praying to whatever God you believe in. Quick! And for the first time, as Jonah's roused from that deep sleep, he feels the reeling and the rocking of that uh, boat. He probably hears the wind screeching and howling. He probably hears the timber creaking and he, he knows immediately, he knows which God is behind this storm. He's run from God. God has been waiting for him to arrive 
Listen, God is always ahead of you and me. In fact, he's behind us, he's above us, he's beneath us. Whenever you run, he's already there. In fact, Jonah is the only man on board who knew the true and living God, but at the moment he isn't on speaking terms with him, is he? There's no doubt in my mind, though, that Jonah can hear the voice of God in the howling of that wind. One more observation I want to make from scene one. You notice what the captain says at the end of verse six, where he says, get up and call on your God. Now notice the next phrase, perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. The the captain is urging him. It's interesting. He says, you know, why aren't you praying to your God? Isn't it interesting how pagans can hold a, a believer to a higher standard than the believer will hold himself to whenever he's disobedient? The world knows how you're to live, and me. Don't ever doubt it. And the captain is urging Jonah, maybe your God will feel sorry for us. You can translate it that way. Don't miss this irony. I mean, this, this old salt speaking words that I'm convinced were like salt in the wound of Jonah's rebellious heart, and it hit him like a shot of rock salt. He has resigned. From the service of God. Because he does not want God to feel sorry for the Ninevites. And now he's in the middle of a storm that's about to take the ship to the bottom of the sea. And he's being asked for his God to feel sorry for them. Supposed to be the same prayer request an obedient prophet would make in the land of Nineveh. And now it's requested of him on the Mediterranean Sea, and I know it hit Jonah hard, but Jonah won't pray it. In fact, you won't find him praying in chapter 1. He won't even pray that prayer. He's not going to pray for them either. Didn't you read the sign? Do not disturb. Don't bother my life. Why why can't I just hide away? I just want to sleep. I want to wake up. And get off the boat in Spain. That's my plan. That's my life. And and I'm not praying for pagans. Don't disturb. That's my that's my life motto now. See, this is a this is an extremely prodigal prophet. He won't even pray then for them. Now the second scene opens, and the subtitle again could be simply stated: Don't ask. The pagans have called a prayer meeting. That isn't working. So they move to the next thing, and they're a lot more familiar with this one. Rolling dice. Verse 7, each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. You see these pagans and this dice? Perhaps small stones, the Arabic counterpart to this word, referred to colored stones, all one color except for one, which was a different color, and they'd... Roll them and you'd have a, a stone assigned to you. It, it could have been pieces of, of wood and they would literally draw them to see who got the longest piece and, and that person would be uh, the winner. And Jonah wins. <laughs> He's got to be thinking, good grief, this is my lucky day. And as Jonah, as Jonah draws the longest piece or, the, or he gets the colored stone immediately, He is besieged with a flurry of questions. Verse 8, then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this 
calamity struck us. What, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Just bang, 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 bang. They're terrified. And they're convinced now this is the problem. Can you imagine this scene? The wind is whipping across this deck. The ship is rolling up and down. Uh, hardly able these men are to stand. They're probably rain-drenched. They're drawing straws or pulling sticks or throwing stones. And it's this stranger. He's been keeping to himself. You know, he, he's the, something's going on there. You could render the first question that they ask him this way. What have you done? What have you done? And you could, you could render the next question. You notice that one, in fact, is translated, in fact, this way. What is your occupation? What's your occupation? Oh, that's the... That is the last question Jonah ever wanted to answer. What do you do for a living? Caught. What's your occupation? What do you do with your time? Can you believe it? God has pinned him down at sea. Jonah, it's obvious your God is upset. This incredible storm is from some God, and now we know it's your God. What did you do to bring this on us? And by the way, what is your occupation? Now, he can no longer say with authority and conviction, I am a prophet of God. He can't say that. Isn't it a wonderful thing when you do something right and somebody notices and asks you, you know, hey, hey, aren't you, a, aren't you one of those Christians? Isn't it a terrible moment when you're doing something wrong and somebody says, hey, aren't you, aren't you one of those Christians? It's a tragic thing when a believer's sin is exposed by the world. Jonah answers in verse 9, look there, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This is, this is classic. I am amazed by this. Jonah is still maintaining his composure. In fact, when he responds with, I am a Hebrew, that's the way Jewish people would speak to pagans. I'm a Hebrew. Still cool as a cucumber. I am a Hebrew, and, and I fear the God of heaven, who, by the way, made sea and the earth. I'm amazed by this. He, he has a cool detachment to their panic, as, as if he's on the good side. I am a Hebrew. That's true. I fear, that word means I am in awe of and in compliance with the God of heaven. That's not true. That's absolutely wrong. Nothing could be at this moment further from the truth, and Jonah knows it. Listen, what, what's happening here is he is responding with the right answer. As if he doesn't want to add to his, his crimes. He is given perfect theology. I'm a Hebrew and I follow God who, by the way, created everything. It, it's good theology, but it is absolute hypocrisy for him to say, I fear. I am in compliance with. I am surrendered to this God. It's almost as if he doesn't want to add to 
his sins that he knows he's already committing. So he responds carefully, discreetly. According to the Chicago Sun-Times, an article about a woman named Nita, she, she didn't seem to be the kind of person that would be involved in a police pursuit, but she was. After police chief Mike Hutter attempted to pull her over for a traffic violation, wasn't a serious one, just pull her over, she refused to stop. The article went on to say, even after flipping on his lights and siren, instead of pulling over, the 66-year-old woman pulled away from him. Police would follow her through three counties, and it didn't end until the state police put a spike strip in the road in front of Friedman's car. After driving over it, three of her tires went flat. She still tried to keep going, but escape became impossible, and she finally pulled over and, and stopped. What astounded the police and caught my attention in the article was the fact that throughout the entire ordeal, Miss Friedman never went over the speed limit. She observed all the traffic laws, even stopping at one point behind a vehicle that was making a left turn. What irony. While running from the law, she is determined not to break the law. That's what's happening here. Jonah is trying not to discredit God while he is in the midst of disobeying God. He is speaking respectfully of God while he is disrespecting God with his life. As if he doesn't want to add to the crimes. Now evidently these sailors pulled more out of Jonah than just that simple answer. Because verse 10, if you'll note there, tells us that Jonah had also told them he was, he was running away. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And, and, and they immediately saw through his foolish hypocrisy. See, he said, I, I, I fear... The Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And and by the way, I'm also running from him. And they they see through it immediately. Jonah, you say that your God made the land and the sea. Let's see, where are we now? Uh, We're on the sea. That's great. Now what? Isn't it tragic when pagans can see it and prophets can't? Isn't it tragic when the world exposes the sins of Christians that Christians can't quite see? Scene one, don't disturb. Scene two is don't ask. But they did. And now scene three opens with the subtitle, don't turn around. In other words, I'm still not going back to Nineveh. Look at verse 11. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea may become calm for us? The sea was becoming increasingly stormy. In other words, it was bad before, now it's worse. It's getting worse. Now what these pagans were missing was motive. They thought Jonah was running away from his God because he'd done something. They didn't know he was running away from God because he wouldn't do something. They thought Jonah had done something wrong. They didn't know Jonah was actually refusing to do something right. But they just wanted to end. Okay, we've identified the culprit. You've told us you're running. And now we know who your God is. And we know that your God, according to you, created the sea, which we're now going to try to survive upon. Now what? 
And Jonah, I believe, stuns them by offering this solution. Verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. Now, I would expect them to just pick him up and throw him over. It's old salts, okay, works for us. Your history. Hold your breath, your nose, everything else. What surprises me is verse 13. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier. They rode desperately. The Hebrew literally means they dug in. They dug in with their oars. With all their might. To save their lives and to save Jonah's life. And don't miss this irony either. Jonah wouldn't lift a finger to save the lives of pagan Ninevites. And now these idol-worshipping sailors are putting their lives on the line to save his. Amazing to me. Can you imagine how convicted... I don't know if Jonah's sitting over somewhere watching these men put their backs into these oars, knowing they don't want him to die. We've we got to save this man's life, along with our own. This man must have been deeply convicted as he saw these unbelievers fighting to save his life when he, a believer, was running away from saving the lives of others. But it's no use. So the pagans now pray out of desperation to Yahweh. Verse 14, Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as... You have pleased. That's a pretty incredible prayer for a pagan. Don't miss it. There's something happening in their lives. I'll come back to it in a moment. Verse 15. So they pick up Jonah and they throw him into the sea and the sea stopped. It's raging. Now, have you noticed that before they throw him in, there's not one Offer of repentance to God. Not one prayer to God. Not one suggestion that, uh, you know, okay, uh, look, can we turn around? I give. None of that. Rather than, than surrender to God, he is willing to surrender his life. Now, for the average Christian, this doesn't really seem applicable, does it? Oh, but it is. See, when we walk away from obedience to God, we end a life worth living. According to 2 John 1.8, we forfeit a full reward by living disobedient lives. Prodigals to this day waste their lives. They waste their lives. But as far as Jonah, the prodigal prophet, is concerned, he'd rather die now than see the Ninevites come to life. Simple as that. And as soon as he hits the water, uh, the sea grows calm. Verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord greatly. Oh, now wait a second. Did you catch that? You ought to circle that word fear, track it back to where Jonah said, I fear God. Now they're fearing God, and it says they fear God greatly. Jonah said that earlier, and he didn't mean it. 
do they? Well, notice they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. The one Hebrew scholar wrote, you can understand this phrase, this promise, as a promise to serve him. He, he, he adds this. He said, this language, these are terms of conversion to Israel's God and the recognition that Yahweh alone is the one true God. Imagine that. These men place their faith in in this God alone. So here you have this irony. Jonah refuses to keep his prophetic vows to worship and serve God. And here are now converted pagans making vows to worship and serve God. This is no foxhole conversion, by the way. Mark the fact here that these vows are made not during the storm as a promise that if I ever get out of it, I'll, I'll, I'll live for you. They make these vows when? After the storm is over. After they have been delivered, they promise God to serve him as God alone. Imagine the revival. And Jonah missed it. Prodigals miss the good times of God's spirit because they're, they're, they're too focused on not having their way with God's spirit. So they miss these times. There are two revivals in this journal, and Jonah's going to miss both of them, effectively. And now Jonah is discarded. He is he's dumped overboard like cheap cargo. And it struck me, you know, whenever you choose not to follow God, your life is cheapened. In fact, the world knows nothing of the value of life like God communicates. But when we walk away from God, we, we cheapen everything. When we follow him, our lives have great value. And so for Jonah, he's cheapened everything now. And he is now overboard. Let me pull out two truths of God's grace here that I observe in these scenes. One, number one, even when Jonah was disobedient, God used him for his glory. It's interesting to me, the conversion of these pagan sailors. I mean, who would have ever thought it possible? It's the revival in this little book, actually, that um, is most often overlooked. And yet, in spite of himself, Jonah would be used as a messenger of God to deliver just enough of an introduction that would bring about the submission of these old, salty sailors. One more lesson of God's grace. Jonah was discarded by these sailors, but he is not discarded by God. I love that truth that we can observe here. Now, God has a fish. Just about ready to move in. And I'll tell you something. If, uh, if I'd been God, uh, I would have sent a shark. <laughs> a big one, yeah. So, you know, you know, Jonah could be swallowed whole. I know how the story ends. I'd have made sure Jonah lived, but he'd have teeth marks. <laughs> he'd never forget. The good news here is that while Jonah wants to forget about God, God has not forgotten about 
Jonah. Jonah has resigned. God hasn't. You and I can never tire God out. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Now I imagine as um, Jonah hit that cold water in the Mediterranean Sea and he felt the waves immediately calm down, he probably thought, I've really blown it now. There's no hope for me. I'll never see the light of day again. But he's in for a surprise from a gracious God who loves even prodigal sons. Because just about the time he's thinking that, just then, as Jonah is, imagine it, as Jonah is treading water, the lights are suddenly turned out. Now, can you imagine it? He knows he's alive because he can, he can hear his heart beating. And he's wet. And he's cold. But he can't see anything. He thinks his life has ended. No, it's only the ending of scene three. In fact, as it relates to the walk of Jonah with God, a wonderful beginning is about to take place. Father, I don't know what it would take to get our attention. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, your love. We can't imagine this prodigal prophet treading water and suddenly a gulp. He's in total darkness. But the lessons are for us too. Help us not to be detached from our dying world. Thank you for so many workers out here, Father, I know who are committed and involved. Help us to not deliver theological truth and live hypocritically. Help us to care about those who don't believe. Would you help us by your spirit even now? Perhaps to allow you to disturb us, to turn us around for the sake of your glory. And we thank you that you are never weary of us, your sons and daughters by faith in Christ. Thank you for your amazing, wonderful grace. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen.